It is good to see all of you. It is so great to think about how awesome our God is, that Jesus says he will return, and we do await that, um, and we'll celebrate that today. So Isaiah 64, that's where we are, if you want to turn your Bibles there. And we're going to talk about how God reveals himself, the revelation of God. And uh, when you have something that you want to reveal, waiting is really hard. I remember uh, when I was a kid and I found the perfect Christmas present for my brother, but it, it was in October when I bought it. And it was this Inspector Gadget doll that apparently is worth big bucks if it's still in the package today. But, uh, oh, it was like torture because I had this great thing and I wanted to give it to my brother so the day came and that was great. I remember how hard it was when when I bought a ring for Laura to propose marriage and uh, beforehand had done all these uh, preparations to make a crate and get my workmates to take me to her house and I used a snorkel to not choke on packing peanuts <laughs> and, uh, you know, presented the ring and it was, uh, you know, months in the making. And just waiting was what I remember about these things. I remember very well the Lord putting it on my heart to come to Australia and that I didn't know when it would happen or how he would do it. And for years and years, uh, it was hard to wait. But through that time, you learn to trust God, that he has a plan and that he will do it. Like every door seems to be closed. There doesn't seem to be a clear way. And to know that in his time, he'll open a door. Like when the door is open, you'll actually see it and be able to go through it. And perhaps in all those instances, I remember waiting the most is because that's where I was the longest. But in each one of those times, God proved himself faithful and he brought me through. Um, and we can we can count on his faithfulness in the future. Because maybe your life feels like it's in a bit of a holding pattern of sorts, uh, in the passage today, we're going to talk about God's remnant who they wanted God to act now. They wanted God to reveal himself now. Like, don't you know that we're in trouble, God? We want, we want you to reveal yourself. Show your power in this situation. They knew he could do it. They wanted him to do it. They asked him to, but he didn't seem to be doing it. And so they began to wonder, what's going on? Can you relate to that? We can be in that holding pattern, and you've committed something to God, but it seems like it's getting a bit wearisome to wait, to keep waiting for God to act in the way that we want him to. God could change your situation in an instant, but often he allows us to wait uncomfortably long times. And I'm learning that Instead of changing our situation, God wants to use that situation to change us. That he's going to use those circumstances, that the uncomfortable ones that we want to just be over with or to have victory or to be finished. And he's going to say, no, I'll allow that to remain because there is more that I want to do in you through that very thing that's uncomfortable. So even if things feel fruitless, if they seem hopeless, Know that God is working through those very things for your salvation. He is doing something marvelous. So let's thank him because he is an awesome God. God, thank you for allowing us to gather. You are our father. You are our king. And I pray, Lord, that you would unite our hearts to fear you, that you'd open our eyes to see you. You say in your word that where two or three gather in your name, there you are in the midst. 
And so, Lord, we trust your presence is here in our midst and also among your redeemed. And we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts to receive your truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 64, starting in verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. So God's people were having a tough time in Israel. They were being attacked by their enemies. And they thought back to the time when God revealed himself to them on Mount Sinai. He had done great wonders. He delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand. There were many plagues that he poured out on them. And after bringing them out, he said, prepare yourselves to meet me. I'm going to come down. You need to wash in water, put on clean clothes, and on the third day I'll appear. And so he did. He descended and he warned. He said, don't come near the mountain because no one can, you won't survive it. Like, because God is a powerful God. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 19, 16 through 19, we read about this. And when I read it, it's like my hair stands up on end at the revelation of God's power, because he is, he is, I don't know if you guys, we can be a bit detached from fear, like shaking in your boots fear, but this is the kind of power that God inspires. It says in Exodus 19, and you can be tough, you can act like, ah, I'm, you know, I can handle that. I've been through worse. Well, let's read this and Let's see how they responded. I doubt we would be any more bold or brave than them. Exodus 19, verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Now, this is pretty terrifying. Uh, when you think about a king, you know, he comes out wearing his royal robes and, you know, his crown with a sparkling jewel on it. Well, God was clothed like in fire. And the whole mountain was covered in smoke. And the ground is shaking. And the horn is blaring. And the thunder and lightning is happening right there. It's not like you could count like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. It's like right there. And it's on top of you. Then Moses speaks and a voice responds to him. It says further on in Exodus 20, verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. So they're like, Moses, we're not coming any closer. And we don't want to talk to God. You talk to God. You talk to God and you let us know what he says. Because it's going to kill us. He he is so powerful. So they they had a real knowledge of the power of God. And they were they trembled before him. 
And so given the situation of the Jews in Israel and in Jerusalem at this time, the thought of God revealing himself like that to their enemies, that was very welcome. They're like, God, show yourself like that. Just tear the heavens apart. Reveal your power that the nations would tremble. Wouldn't you get glory out of this God? Reveal yourself as you once did, that the earth would shake, that the skies would split, that they would know that you're God. They would tremble before you. They wanted powerful intervention. They wanted revelation from God. But God was looking for something very... God could have done that. But he wanted his people to repent. His people to repent. They wanted the enemies to tremble. He says, I want my people to tremble. I want my people to repent. If my own people do not fear me or my holiness, why rend the heavens? I already have. I have come down. I have revealed myself to you, but you have not responded to me. We see God's fitting response to the the plead of his people. In their trouble, they said, God, rend the heavens. Come down. In Joel 2, verse 12 and 13, this is a fitting response. Now, therefore, says the Lord, speaking to his people, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Israel wanted to see their enemies humbled by God. God wanted his people to humble themselves. They wanted the heavens to split with a revelation of God's power. He says, you're mourning your situation. You're tearing your clothes. How about rending your hearts? How about having a broken heart about your sin? How about that? And it's a good thing to think about. If we want God to hear our prayers, are we obeying his voice? If we want God to listen to what we're saying and act, Are we doing the one thing that he's asking us to do? Are we willing to obey him? Back to Isaiah 64, 4 and 5. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the one who calls Israel his firstborn son, he's the only true God. The Egyptians served many gods. They were all proven frauds by the Almighty God. There had been many fires kindled on altars to idols, but only God in heaven had answered with fire, So people are kindling fires to sacrifice their God. Well, God answered with fire. And he revealed himself with a voice from heaven. None of those idols could speak that the people worshipped. But God spoke and people heard it. There was so much evidence of God's reality. The, The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. So God has made his existence clear. And it says, those who know God, he acts for one who waits for him. So it's a conditional thing. God will act on behalf of the one who waits for him, the one who looks for him, those who rejoice and do righteously. They acknowledge God. And it says that God was displeased and angry because of the people's sin, and rightly so. 
We can be angry and be in sin. We can have a bad attitude. We can be angry because I'm selfish and I feel like my rights are being infringed upon. It's hard for us to be angry without sin, but not for God, because he's completely sinless. When Jonah was furious that God spared Nineveh, he asked him, is it right for you to be angry? What was the answer? Like he had just saved tens of thousands of people from death. Jonah's angry because he wants them to die. And God says, is it right for you to be angry? What's the answer? No, it was not right for him to be angry, but he justified himself. He said, well, of course it's right for me to be angry. You're like, those guys are terrible. I knew you were going to be gracious, God. I just knew it was going to be a waste of my time. Well, it wasn't a waste of God's time. So it's good to think about If I'm angry, is it right for me to be angry? It was right for God to be angry over the sins that were committed and the hypocrisy, as we'll see, in his people. Now, Paul, he quotes this passage with a twist. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. I was thinking today about all the processes that are going on inside of my body without me even knowing. That, that I'm like breathing without thinking about it. And that I know because I've been told that the, the heart is pumping blood through my body, which is oxygenated. That's helping all of my organs function. There's all these things happening. I have no idea really what's going on, but it's just happening. And God knows all about it, not just in my life, but in your life individually in everyone on the planet, all in real time at the exact same time. And he knows the past and he knows the future. I mean, it's a God who knows everything. So there's a lot that's happening. He says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that you've done. But see in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, it says, but as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So you see the difference between the passages. The one says, the one who waits for him. This one says, the one who loves him. Implied that if you love God, you will wait on God. You will do what he has said. Paul also tells us that born-again believers, they have new revelation through the Holy Spirit. There were things not known before that God has revealed to us. God has things he wants to say to you. Jesus told his disciples, there's many things I have to say, but you can't receive them now. But the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will explain the things that I'm saying. If I tell him something, he'll tell you. And so the things of God can be known to us. And we can read the Bible and actually understand what it's saying, which is really awesome. We don't have all knowledge, but there's things that eyes cannot see and ears cannot hear and would not have even entered into your heart that God will reveal to those who love him. So God wants to reveal himself to you. He may not split the heavens, but if we'll have broken hearts, he will show himself. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. 
have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Verse 6 is a commonly used verse to show the fallen state of all people. That at our best, to please God, it's really like a filthy rag. It's um, nothing of value. Now, while it's true that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, we have to be careful not to wrench this verse from the context of the passage. Verse 5 suggests that it's possible to do righteously. Uh, We know that righteousness, it comes through faith. In context, Isaiah is bemoaning the fact that God's people were sinful, they needed salvation. It's clear right in our passage that people sought the Lord. And yet he says, you know, no one has sought the Lord, and that's the use of hyperbole, which is exaggeration to make a point. We do this all the time, hyperbole, just right there. He says, there's no one who calls on your name. There's no one who stirs up himself to take hold of you. And right at the very beginning of this chapter, what had Isaiah done? He says, God, we're in the heavens. He's seeking the Lord. He's calling out to the Lord. But it's kind of like when we say, no one ever listens to me. Have you ever said that? Now, the irony is, if you really believed that, why would you say it? Because no one would listen to you. But you say it because you feel like, despite you've been saying it, people have not been taking you seriously, and you would like them to start. Like, hear me now. This is how I feel. I have been saying this over and over and over, but you're never listening. So we do this. Now, the first point in this passage There's a big difference between our righteousness and God's righteousness. Because if you notice, verse 6, it says, Our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The things we do to try to be good in themselves, they're not godly. They're not holy because we are sinful. Genuine righteousness, as in Abraham's case, it has always been and will always be given to us through faith. It's not by trying to do good things that we're righteous. But when you believe God and you obey him, it's accounted to you as righteousness. Lot, he was deemed righteous. Were they perfect men, Abraham and Lot? No. But God imputed to them as righteousness. He's a gracious God. It would be an overreach, therefore, to say everything that you do is like a filthy rag. That's not what it's saying, because it's possible to do righteously. It's possible to do through God the things that fully please him. But if we look to the efforts of our flesh to please God, well, then that is like a filthy rag. That's something that can't clean. It's like if you're out in the uh, the shed and there's an oil-soaked cloth, you would not try to use it to clean a mirror. That would be a total waste of time. You wouldn't want to wash your face with that black, dirty, grimy cloth. It could not cleanse you. By God's grace, we're born again. We're made new creations. We, if we're in the flesh, we cannot please God. It says that in Romans chapter 8. But if we're in the spirit, then we can please God. We can do things that are pleasing to him. So our righteous acts, they don't produce salvation. They're evidence that we have been born again. There's nothing about our flesh that is good. However, we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We read that in Titus 2.12. There was a great quote 
uh, in Got Questions, it says, our, on our own, our righteousness is simply self-righteousness, and vain, hypocritical religion produces nothing more than filthy rags. And that's what had happened in Israel at this time. God's people had tried to justify themselves. They resembled those dry, fading leaves that were easily blown away. It says, God, we're getting blown away here. We're dry. We're without strength. We're at the mercy of the wind that blows by. We need you. And they said, there's no one who calls in your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. And it's a good question. What does it take for us to be stirred up to take hold of God? Not just to have a little bit of God, not just salvation for today, not just help, but actually to lay hold of God and to give him our life completely without reservation. Sometimes sin and and the consequences of it, trials, pains, trouble, those are keys that turn us to the Lord. They're often used by God to cause us to stir us up, to break us out of our slumber to seek him. But in the case here in Israel, instead of repenting of their sin and obeying, they redoubled their efforts to pray, to fast, to sacrifice. But God would not accept this bargain. They were trying to bargain with God, but he would not receive it. Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire. All of our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? The prophet acknowledged. He says, God, we're your people. We're your children. We identify with you. You are our king. Just like a potter has a lump of clay and he makes it into a vessel that he wanted to, we're that in your hand. You've made us. Here we are. Like your fingerprints are all over us. You're the one who brought us up out of Egypt. You're the one who's established on this holy mountain. Why would you consent to our destruction? If you made us, why would you let us be destroyed? So these are the questions that they're thinking. What the people didn't understand and the point that we can learn is that what appears to be our destruction, the things that feel like it's tearing us apart and there's no hope for us, they can be used by God to work for our deliverance and restoration. God was purifying his people. He was disciplining them. He was not intending to destroy them. It felt like they were being destroyed. It looked like they were being destroyed, but God would restore them. He would not remember their iniquity forever. He would not spare the rod that was going to drive idolatry from them. They lamented over the the fall of the temple, more than the fact God's presence had left the temple. They valued their pleasant things more than the givers, the giver of the gifts, the one who had given them to them, God. God showed great restraint. He had weighted his discipline perfectly. And when we see how rough it was for them, we see how bad the sin was in God's eyes. Last week in the discipleship course, 
we listened to Ten Shekels and a Shirt by Paris Wrighthead, and in that message, there's some really confronting truths. And he talks about how man deserves hell. And we don't hear that very often, like, man deserves to go to hell. Wait, wait a second, why should I go to hell? Like, I haven't been that bad. Um, and he says, we have sinned against the light of our conscience. We have disobeyed the, the light of the law written upon our hearts. We have uh, disregarded the testimony of nature, the truth that you know, the truth that you know you don't even practice. He says, for all these reasons and more, we deserve hell. We deserve to go to outer darkness forever where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. That is our, that is what we deserve. And if we think that going to hell for a single sin on earth is extreme, then we don't understand the nature of sin and how bad it is, how destructive and deadly. There's a sense of justice within all of us where we think, we hear about like a case where there's a murder and the guy gets, you know, the the culprit gets six months prison time. And we think, that does not seem right. That you would take a life, it was proven, that you would only go to prison for six months? Like something in us just goes, that's not right. Now there may be that occasion where we hear about a sentence and go, you know, 80 years in prison, I mean, who can even do that? that? That seems a bit extreme, right? So we have our own ideas about what's just or not. But God's justice is true. And that's what we deserve for our sin. The Jews tried to justify themselves by the law instead of being convicted by it. They used the law to prove how good they were rather than the fact they had broken it. Paris said in his sermon, it's trying to convince a good man that he has trouble, excuse me, he basically says, I, I, my notes are a little messed up in this portion, but he's saying it's not, the gospel is not trying to convince a good man that he's in trouble with a bad God, but a bad man that he's in trouble with a good God. And so we are under his wrath. We deserve punishment for our sin. So let's be broken for our sin because of a good God who will get to the good part that he actually made a way for us to be forgiven forever and to have life. Isaiah 65.1 I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. God said, I was found by people who weren't looking for me. They didn't ask for me. They weren't seeking me. And he's talking about the Jews, the nation of Israel. He revealed himself to them. He said, I am who I am. And he showed himself to them. He made a covenant with them. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I've chosen you. They hadn't chosen him. They didn't know him from anyone. 
And they had many gods. But he inserted himself into their life and said, Hey guys, here I am. Be my people. I'll be your God. And then he gave them a law which outlined his precepts. His, and he, he appointed priests. And he sent prophets. And he did all these things so that they could know God. But they rebelled against his word. It says here, in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. So they had their own ideas about how to best worship God and what was really required of them. And it says that they provoked him to anger continually to his face. So they had access to God, and right in front of him, they provoked him by their sin. People who, uh, it goes through all these things. They were sacrificing to other gods. They were eating unclean things. They defiled themselves with the dead. They, they were hanging around the graveyards, in a sense. They were associating with dead things. They were haughty in their self-righteousness. They were the ones who were saying, hey, get away from me. I'm holier than you. And he's like, that, it's like smoke in my nostrils. It's an irritation to me all the time. Because you're offering your sacrifices to me to prove your righteousness instead of in brokenness and humility that you have sinned and you need me to forgive you. They believed they were holier than thou. Could we be guilty of the same that the pride, we could have pride in having God as our Father and not even see our sin? Not even recognize it. To us, if you sacrifice a baby on an altar to, to Moloch, that's a pretty obvious sin, right? Committing murder. It's a terrible thing. We think that that's just, you couldn't not know that that's wrong, but they didn't see it. So is it possible that I could be sinning and not even see it? In the book of Malachi, God tells his people no less than five times. He tells them things that they had done, and he gives them very specific proof of the things. He says, a father is honored by his son, a master is obeyed by his servant, but you have not honored me, priests. And they go, well, how, how haven't we honored you? Like, basically, we honor you all the time. And then he goes on. You've offered polluted, you've polluted my altar. And they say, well, how have we polluted your altar? Then he says, you've wearied me with your words. Like, you praise me on one hand, and then you're totally denying me with your words. Well, how have we wearied you? Aren't you happy to hear from us? And then, you've abandoned me, and you've served false gods. If you return to me, I will return to you. Well, how could we return to you, God, when we've never left? Where have we gone? And then finally, he says, you've robbed me. And they go, well, how have we robbed you? We haven't robbed you. So on and on through the whole book, God's saying, this is what you've done. They're like, no, we haven't. This is what you're doing. How? When? Like they're just playing dumb. I don't know about you, but that's really irritating. When you know someone knows something and they're just playing dumb. And that's how it feels when you're reading through. He's like, well, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. This is what you like to do. You keep doing it. Oh, really? Well, I don't remember that. Do you remember that? I don't know what he's talking about. And then it's like, okay, guys, after decades, after centuries of this, the ledger is getting long and judgment will come. Judgment's coming is what he was telling his people. 
they were guilty in every case. What kindled God's anger was their hypocrisy and their claims of righteousness when they weren't righteous at all. That's what really, that's what he's hitting on here. That's why he's saying it's like smoke. Whenever those, those sacrifices come up to me, it's like, it's not a good aroma. It's a bad one because of your hearts. Your hearts are wicked and you won't admit it. You won't just confess your sin to me. You won't leave your sin. But you keep thinking that you're great and that you're actually holy and good. That's the problem. Now, during a court trial in the U.S., um, a witness can plead the fifth. And I know you guys have seen probably TV shows and movies when that happens. But there's a, uh, I learned that there are quite a few differences between Australian law and American law. But having grown up in America, um, that's something that you would do. You would plead the fifth, which is the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. That if you're called as a witness, you don't have to say anything as a witness that could incriminate you or make you appear guilty. There would be your own chance to be on trial. But as a witness, you're not on trial, right? You're, if you're the defendant, however, well, then you have to answer. You cannot plead the fifth if you're on trial. But if you're a witness, you don't have to incriminate yourself. And there are rules in Australia, too, about uh, incriminating yourself. Now, instead of, so, so the nation is on trial, right? They're the defendant. And they could plead guilty. Um, there's no, no contest plea, but that's a plea you could do in the U.S. But the reason why you would take, uh, you would plead guilty is to take the plea bargain, right? And what happens is you get a lighter sentence. But if you choose to say, I'm innocent of all charges, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, and you're later to found to be guilty, the judge has every right to throw the book at you because you have not admitted your guilt when you should have, right? So we get that. And Israel is like, not guilty. You guys have been eating defiled things. Not guilty. You've had the wrong heart. Not guilty. Time and time again, they were not admitting that they were guilty. And God gives people a plea bargain opportunity. Everybody even though we've all sinned. And some of us think that because we're Christians, God's going to go easy on us. That really, he's going to give us preferential treatment because, hey, Jesus has forgiven our sins. So if we sin, it's really not a big deal, not really any consequences. But this is untrue. The Bible says God sternly disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines those he loves. Our belief in doctrine does not help us escape justice of God. Sin must be confessed and repented of, or it's like a virus in your system that's going to bring you down. It's going to make you sick, and it's going to lead to even premature death. It's got to be dealt with. The problem is in our hearts. And if we try to hide our sin, there's going to be this continual conflict There's going to be a dullness of hearing, a dryness, a numbness to the things of God. If you could turn to Psalm 32, verse 1 through 5, we read of the blessing for those who have their sins forgiven. And this can be the blessing that God has for you today. Because maybe there's been things that you haven't even acknowledged that God has been talking to you about. Psalm 32, verse 1.
It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If God reveals sin to you, don't stay silent about it. Don't try to ignore it. Acknowledge it before God. Confess your sin. Speak up. If you want God to reveal himself to you, he will. We will. We can have a clean heart and a new start because God forgives those who repent. Back to Isaiah 65, verse 6. It says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. God gives space for repentance. He took action, however, with the Syrian conflict and captivity in Babylon. God was going to measure out discipline appropriate to the sins that they had committed. And uh, the wages of sin, what is it? Death. The wages of sin is death. And he's like, I'm going to pay into your bosom the sins, the, the payment for the sins that you have earned. Now, when I was a kid, I used to love, uh, uh, like, sport jackets or the kind of suit coats because of the hidden pockets inside. I'm like, that would be the first thing I would look for. Like, oh, man, check out this. This has the secret pockets just because you couldn't see them on the outside. I don't know why I thought that was so cool, but I thought it was great. Like, this is where I would stash my money or this is where I'd put my wallet. And, of course, I don't put my wallet in those places now. But... uh to this day, one of the safest places to carry something is near your heart. When you're in front of you, when you're walking through the Russian markets in Phnom Penh, you, you make your backpack and you put it on the front as a front pack because you don't know what's going on behind you where people could be opening a zipper. It's very crowded and tight. So you want to protect things right here. Some people will hold like a, a locket with picture of their, their mother or their father, someone that's special to them and they'll keep it close to their heart. You can also get those passport carriers that you hang around your neck, and it's a little discreet, hung under your shirt, where things are going to be protected. It's hard for a pickpocket to get to those things. And so God's saying, your sin, the wages for your sin, I'm going to just pay it right into your bosom. You're not going to be able to get rid of it. You're not going to be able to clean it. Nobody's going to be able to get it away from you. It is stuck to you forever. I'm going to pay it right into your heart. And that's what God does with our sin. Our hearts become polluted and corrupted and filthy. And we can't wash it ourselves. We can't get rid of it. We can't. It's like, like the 30 pieces of silver that Judas was able to throw away from him into the temple. The guilt of it he still carried. That's why he went and hung himself. So when God says, I'm going to pay it into your bosom, you cannot escape this guilt it's stuck on you. And praise the Lord, he's made a way for that guilt to be removed through Jesus Christ. 
And when, when I've done this sermon, don't think for a second that it hasn't skewered me as I'm reading the Word. And I'm thinking, man, God, how many times have I known there was sin in my life, but I wouldn't even admit it to you. And when I knew it, I, I didn't even want to change. And then when I finally acknowledged it, I wasn't able to change. I wasn't able to stop sinning. I wasn't even able to stop wanting to sin. Like, I'm so incapable of living in a way that pleases you. How hopeless I am to recognize my own sin that looks so bad on other people. But I have sinned. And so, man, how good is God that he would open our eyes to see it? That he would reveal himself and and the words that Paul spoke in Romans 7, 24 and 25. He just comes back where he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with this mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So God gives us a new mind. He gives us a new heart when we're born again, when we acknowledge our sin and we repent. We say, God, change me. I can't change myself. I am hopeless. I am helpless. I am doomed. I deserve hell. We come to that place of laying ourselves at the foot of the cross and just saying, Jesus Christ, wash me, make me new. He will. He does it by his grace. And how good God is that he's so patient with us. Because he could have wiped us from the earth a long time ago. But he is patient. He is long-suffering. There's a cool thing uh, I thought about. When you're paying somebody, we talk about wages. If you're paying someone by the day, you want to get them, you want to have them start work early, right? If it's, when I used to uh, do concrete, I used, I had a couple of concrete jobs that I organized, and a concrete finisher in the States, you, you just pay them for the day, because they can't go to another job. It's like 325 bucks a day. So, it's probably $450 a day by now, uh, on a weekend. But the thing is, you want that mud, you want to schedule it so it's arriving early. You want those guys starting work early because you need to get the work done. Time is of the essence. And if I'm paying a flat rate for a labor, I don't want them showing up at noon. I want them starting at six. You know, I want them starting early whenever it's possible. Now in the parable of the vineyard that Jesus told, the owner of the vineyard, he goes out at dawn to find workers. And, uh, he goes out again at 9 a.m at noon, at 3 p.m., and at 5 p.m., which is just one hour before quit time. And he's going to pay them all exactly the same. And I'm like, what a generous guy. That he would even bother to go out at 5 p.m. when there's only one hour left in the day, and he knows himself, I'm going to pay you what's right, and he's going to pay him for a whole day. It's remarkable. It just shows God's character. He's generous to anybody. Uh, if he says, hey, come with me, come and work in my vineyard. And if you say, yeah, I'll do that. You can be in the twilight of your life. You could be middle-aged. You can be young. It doesn't matter. God wants to use you. And he wants you to be part of his family today. He wants to see your life be fruitful for his glory. The Jews asked Jesus, well, how can we do the work of God? And in John six twenty nine, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So if you want to do something for God, you need to 
repent and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and then live in the way where He is your Master, He is your Lord. What He says is what you choose to do. God is patient. You may say, well, you know, it's 9 a.m. Why not wait until noon? I'll get the same pay. Why don't I wait till 5 p.m. to go out for the job? I'd rather just work an hour and, and get paid for the whole day. Well, don't assume that you have tomorrow. Don't assume you even have this afternoon because every moment you have on this planet is a gift of God and your time is in His hands. Now, as we move into a time of uh, communion, I wanted to, there's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. The kids have been going through the names of God. And one of the names that we see in scripture is Jehovah Naka, which is the God who strikes. And uh, that, that's probably not one that you put on a pillowcase. You know, you're not going to put that, um, on the wall, like when you walk in, you're like, oh, the God who strikes. What kind of God is that? Like, that sounds a little rough. But if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9, on the theme of God paying into our bosom according to our sin, and the fact that he took our sin upon himself, it fits in beautifully with that theme. talking to his people who were in sin in Ezekiel 7, 8 and 9. So just forward a little bit in your Bibles. It says, Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. So he's like, you guys are feeling at ease and comfortable in your sin, but a day is coming when I'm going to strike, and you'll know it's me, because your abomination will be in your midst. It's going to be evident that I'm the one who's punishing you. I'm the one who's striking you. Now, if you turn now to back to Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5, a passage that's speaking of the Messiah God would send. God has sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. None of us could redeem ourselves. None of us can forgive ourselves. We are sinners who need a Savior. We need to be washed. That sin that's been paid into our bosom has corrupted us. There's no salvation for us in ourselves. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5, speaking of the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. That word there, smitten by God. The same word the God who strikes, he took the hits that you deserved. He took the punishment that I deserved. The punishment that was that deserved to be paid into me, he has washed away when we repent and trust in him. And Jesus was struck, and you see that crucifixion scene and the brutality of it and the punishment Jesus endured. 
and his separation from God and how people scorned him and mocked him and he took it all and there was forgiveness on his lips. Well, that's the forgiveness he offers you today. Whether you don't know Jesus, whether you're a new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, there's forgiveness for you. There's a new life for you. There's a new heart for you. God, he's the one who strikes, but he's also the one who has absorbed the punishment and washed you clean by his grace. So we would say, oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would come and change the situation, that you reveal yourself to my enemy. God is saying, how about rending your heart before me? Be broken. Admit your own sin. And I will reveal myself to you. I will show you my power. I will, I will redeem and I will restore. Let's thank him. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you are a great God, so powerful, so mighty, just uh, beyond comprehension. And yet you revealed yourself to us. And you've revealed your love to us through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his death, his resurrection, and for the many promises we have in your word. Lord, I pray that you would wash us of all sin, that we would acknowledge our sin. We wouldn't keep silent anymore, but we would acknowledge our sin before you, repent and be saved, be washed in the blood of Jesus. Thank you again, Lord, for the the work that you do, for the way you speak to us. And we ask your blessing upon this time as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.